Good evening, friends. My name's Craig. I'm a member of the congregation here at, at Five with my wife, and uh, it's a privilege to be opening God's Word with you tonight. Stu's asked me to, to kick off this two-week series in transitions because I was a senior minister of a church a little while ago and was part of a transition. So um, I'll be speaking to what was just read to us from those two camera angles because in two weeks' time, we welcome our new senior minister. Roseville 2019 is a time of transitioning leadership. And Israel 850 BC was also a time of transition. And I reckon there are three things relevant for us as a church today. Number one, life and ministry, they're just hard. But God is rich in power and mercy. And so we need to remember who's in charge. Ministry is hard. Christian ministry is hard. So it's incumbent upon us to be praying for Mal and his family, for Stu and his family and others who are over us in the Lord. Because it doesn't matter how many mountaintop experiences you've had, ministry is hard. And I don't reckon any mountaintop experience could be more impressive than the one Elijah had in the previous chapter on top of Mount Carmel. Well, the context was uh, the, the time of King Ahab, king over Israel, and he was the worst king ever. Back in chapter 16, we read that it was in the 38th year of, of uh, Asa, king of Judah, that Ahab became king of Israel. He reigned for 22 years. He did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, now whatever they were, but they were bad, he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built. He also made an Asherah pole, a big idol you could worship, and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. Baal was the ancient Near East god of rain and fertility. And God Uh, led by God, Elijah prophesied there would be seven years of drought and that's what transpired. The alleged God of fertility and rain was shown to be no God at all and the apostasy of the king led to a national economic collapse and famine and King Ahab accused Elijah as being the one who had put a hex on Israel In chapter 18, verse 17, he goes to Elijah and said, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? Is this drought we're having all your fault? Now, this accusation of Ahab is itself a contradiction, isn't it? Because if Baal is truly the god of rain, then Elijah could have no power over Israel and the drought at all. And if Elijah does have some influence over the drought, then Baal is not really God. And Elijah brought this conflict to a head and told Ahab to bring 400 of the prophets of Baal and all the people of Israel to the top of Mount Carmel for a public showdown. And he tells the people of Israel, if Baal is God, serve him. But if the Lord is God, serve him. Just stop swinging like a pub door. Well, that's my translation. It's sort of more about stop, stop vacillating and taking a bet on God and also taking a bet on anything else that takes your fancy. Elijah said, here's how it's going to work. Baal's supporters would build a a stone altar, put wood on top and then sacrifice a bull. And Elijah would do the same. 
and then they would take it in turns to pray to their God and whichever uh, group's God brought down lightning to uh, uh, consume the, the sacrifice, well, that would be the God. That God would be uh, proven to be true, their followers vindicated. Now you have to remember that in Israel, lightning strikes were very often a precursor to big rainstorms. So this contest is bringing to a head the folly of attempting to serve two masters. Because friends, our God is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. And lightning will signal the coming of rain to break the drought and famine. And you might know the story. The 450 prophets of Baal danced and shouted and self-flagellated all day long and crickets, nothing happened. And then at the end of the day, when it was time for the evening sacrifice, Elijah got the people to drench his altar with water to the point that a trench he dug around it was full of water. The wood was soaked and it was clearly going to take something utterly extraordinary to get Elijah's party started. And Elijah prayed. He prayed out loud in front of the people, verse 36, for God to, be let, it, for God to let it be known that he is the one true God who was in the business of turning people's hearts back to him and fire fell from the sky and consumed Elijah's altar completely. Verse 39, when the people saw this, they fell prostrate on the ground and cried out, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And the prophets of Baal got rounded up and killed by the people and after seven years of crippling drought, it started to rain. That is quite the mountaintop experience. And, and we've had our own mountaintop experience here, haven't we? We've had one of our generation's finest preachers as our senior minister. But now we've come down from the mountaintop and with me preaching, it might feel like you're in the valley of the shadow of death. But don't worry, I'll be, I'm here for one night only. But there is hope. There is hope, friends, because Mal is coming. But let's follow Elijah down his mountain first. Elijah has stood up publicly for God. He's been vindicated by God and now Queen Jezebel has him in her sights. Verse 2, she wants him dead and sends a message to him that she sent a royal hit squad after him. And when the going gets tough, the tough get going. In Elijah's case, he got going out of town. He ran for his life. This great man of God, verse 3, was afraid and ran for his life. He's just seen God call down fire from heaven in response to his prayer and now he's afraid and he hasn't just quit his job and gone up the coast to pick fruit or run an Airbnb. Verse 4, he came to a broom tree, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. Just take my life. He has laid down and he calls on God to kill him. Elijah is in a dark place. This despair of Elijah demonstrates the frailty of human strength. And God is shown to be sovereign in the forces of nature, a monarch over the kings of this world, and the redeemer of his people who is rich in power and mercy. And we're not that different to Elijah, are we? We can look back to what God has done. We can look back to the cross 
to the mighty resurrection of Jesus from the grave, to that assurance of forgiveness that comes from one of his chosen, forgiven and redeemed children. And, and we can look back to answered prayer in our lives. Like how good was it to hear about last Friday night on the concourse? And we too can get beaten up by the world and beaten up by our own thoughts. And this tells me what I have learned over the past two decades, that life and ministry is hard and God is rich in power and mercy. Elijah's mistake was to forget what he was responsible for and what God has said he's taking responsibility for. And if you get that division of duties wrong in your life, it's going to lead to either laziness or ungodly workaholism. It's going to lead to laziness if you decide that God's covered, got it all covered without you and so your faith just quickly collapses down to fatalism. Or it'll lead to ungodly workaholism if you think that the kingdom of God and the mission of his king in the world stands or falls with you. So when it comes to our family and friends who are not believers, our job is to be faithful. Faithful by living in ways that are consistent with the gospel that has saved us. Faithful by looking for opportunities to speak of our Saviour's love. Our job is to be faithful. God's job, on the other hand, is to save the full number of his people. God is responsible for the salvation of your loved ones. And when it comes to living in ways that are consistent with the gospel that has saved you, your job is to turn up each day and choose to be godly. And when you stumble and sin, you confess your sin to God. You abandon yourself to his mercy found in the cross and you get back up asking for the help of his spirit and you resolve to do better tomorrow. You might find it helpful to share your struggles with one or two trusted friends who you know will be in your corner no matter what. And remember, the fact that you may be struggling with sin, if you are struggling with sin, that is proof that you are alive in Christ. Because dead men, they don't struggle, they just get washed downstream. Your job as a man or woman of God is to stand and live for Jesus. God's job is to equip you by his spirit and to save his people and he will forgive you when you turn to him in repentance and faith. But living for Jesus in a world that seems to be set against his majesty is hard, isn't it? And we can forget how good God has been to us in history, in Jesus, uh, in our own lives. We can allow the present to overwhelm our memory of the past and cloud our view of the future. And that makes the Christian life hard. And the life of the Christian minister is doubly hard, but that's a sermon for another day. Verse 5, our God is rich in mercy and great in power. He provided sleep and sustenance for Elijah, which, verse 8, refreshed him for a 40-day journey to Horeb, the site where God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. And he gets there to the mountain of God, verse 9, and goes into a cave for a little lie down. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah. What are you doing here? This reminds us of Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve were on the run, hiding from God. Where are you? What is it you have done? 
what are you doing here? God asked Elijah. And when you get put under stress, your, your true colours come out. Verse 10, Elijah is convinced he's at the centre of the universe. He is so self-centred, he thinks God's work stands or falls with him. In Elijah's mind, the whole of God's eternal plans depend on him. And the weight of that thinking is crushing him. In response to God's question, Elijah said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to the death with the sword. Jezebel had been rounding up and slaughtering other of of the faithful um, Israelite prophets. Uh, I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And the stakes are high. Israel has abandoned their God. They've torn down their altars. And this is significant in that there is now no way in Israel for atonement to be made for sin. They saw no need for atonement. They were living godless lives and assumed that everything was right with them and with the world. All the while, faithful men and women of God were being hunted and pursued to death. The world at that time would rather live in silence than hear the word of God, which is not that dissimilar to our day, where the prevailing narrative of the vocal minority is that there is no sin, there is no heaven, there is no hell, And anyone who speaks of those matters in polite company will be hounded out of their livelihood. Well, if you think that is the ultimate reality and truth of our day, let's return to Elijah's day for a corrective. Elijah seems to have partially forgotten his past. If you look back to chapter 17, you'll find accounts of God's miraculous provision to Elijah, the way God used him to raise a child from the dead. He seems to have forgotten the mighty acts of God on mountaintops, the mass conversion of the people on Mount Carmel. He mentions none of these. He only talks of Israelite apostasy and prophetic casualties. And the resistance of one person, Jezebel, has in Elijah's mind turned a massive victory into overwhelming defeat. He's certainly not the only one left, but that is how he feels. He complains that people are out to kill him, which is ironic because he's the same guy who back in verse 4 was quite happy to kill himself. In verse 11, we see that he has failed to trust God. He has done what Donald Trump said is a bad deal, a dumb deal. He has traded faithfulness for fear. And my mind goes to Philippians 4 in the New Testament, this great command from the Apostle Paul. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends our understanding, it literally blows your mind, it will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Here's the offer of the gospel. This is a great deal. Trade in your anxieties, all of them, every one of them, for the peace of God that will guard your heart and mind. That is a good deal. But Elijah, he's traded faithfulness for fear and he feels he is all alone. But despite how he feels... The truth of the matter is that God has not abandoned or discarded him. Our God is not in the business of abandoning, forgetting or discarding his people. So he said to Elijah in verse 11, Go and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord's about to pass by. 
Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord wasn't in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And there are lots of ideas about what the gentle whisper is. Some say that, that God is that, that still small voice within. One commentator even um, alluded to, even quoted Jiminy Cricket. What's a conscience? I'll tell you. A conscience is that still small voice that people won't listen to. One translation of the Bible uh, puts it as the sound of sheer silence. So what is the gentle whisper of God? Sorry, I don't know. But I, I do know two things. I know two things. Number one, God doesn't appear to have told Elijah anything in this still small voice of a gentle whisper. It's almost as though it was some audible disturbance that verse 13 caused him to go outside. And the second thing that I know, that if you want to hear God speak, you go to his word. That is where he has promised to speak and he speaks today. Well, Elijah is at the end of his rope. God in his mercy and kindness has showed himself to Elijah in power. And then did you notice that God asks Elijah the same question again? Now, verse 13 is the same as verse 9. And you'd expect an encounter with God to rock your world and change your answer. But not Elijah. His answer is the same. He is still self-centered. Verse 15, the Lord said to him, God spoke to Elijah and blows him out of the water. You can see uh, in your Bibles and on the screen uh, what, what God says to Elijah in verses 15 to 18. In it, God was establishing a new political and religious order in Israel. And there are 7,000 who have remained faithful to God. Elijah is not alone. So we see from him that our feelings are a notoriously unreliable guide to reality. The truth is found when the Lord speaks, which he did to Elijah and he does to us today through his word. The God who speaks is rich in power and mercy. So has the great prophet Elijah got over his funk and is now back on song? Probably not. There's no record of him anointing either of the kings he was told to anoint. In fact, it's his successor, Elijah, who is recorded as anointing one of them. And there's no record of him anointing Elisha as his successor. Uh, in verse 21, he merely takes Elisha as his attendant. Let me read to you from verse 19. So Elijah went and found Elisha. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my mother and father goodbye, he said. Then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah said. What have I done to you? So Elijah left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burnt his plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to all the people and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his attendant. Elisha finished his previous life and followed Elijah. He went to kiss his parents. The only time that word kiss is used in all of 1 and 2 Kings is here and back in verse 18 to describe the 7,000 who had not kissed Baal. The kiss is symbolic of leaving one set of relationships or allegiances and throwing your lot in with another. 
And Elisha willingly walks away from his family, from his livelihood to follow God's man, Elijah. And he turns his plow, did you hear that? Into a DIY Weber barbecue and cooks up 12 oxen. That is one serious meat fest. And as a sign of him going all in on this new mission of God he's been called to, he just leaves his old life behind. So we see a couple of things. We see that the work of the Lord did not depend all on Elijah. He's now a successor in place. We see that God doesn't need our works, but he will use them for his glory. We see that Elijah was responsible to work for God, but he's not responsible for the work of God because God is the one who is at work. He'd reserved 7,000 and Elijah couldn't see the good work that God was doing in his time. Friends, if you think you can go the distance in the Christian life all by yourself under your own steam, you are fooling no one but yourself. Uh, Our our pastors here, they can't shoot us out of the the St. Andrew's cannon with enough barrel velocity for us to go the distance in life. We need to learn here and now how to go the distance in the Christian life. And it is to see the world God's way. To lean on him in your weakness, for his power is made complete in weakness. And when he speaks, he changes the game and he does that through his word. In 850 BC Israel, the leaders had abandoned biblical faith and they'd instituted nationwide pagan worship. The worship of Baal. Baal was the god of fertility and rain and God brought a drought. The leaders turned on God's man and hunted him down. And when we stand up for God against ungodliness and disaster comes on the land, well, we should expect the land to turn on God's people. Life and ministry is hard, but God is rich in power and mercy. So remember who's in charge and like Elisha, go all in on him. And because ministry is hard, pray for those who are over us in the Lord. Amen.